You're listening to Cinema Jaw, the greatest movies podcast ever, recorded on location from our respective homes in Chicago. My name is Matt Kay, and with me is... Rye the Movie Guy, and this week on Cinema Jaw, Matt, we look at movie bosses. That's right, Ryan. Have you have you ever been fired from a job? Have I? I mean, how many haven't I I've been should be the question. Okay, then let me ask it that way. Have you ever not been fired from a job? <laughs> <laughs> it would be something to be fired from a job. There, there was one when I was in high school going into college uh-huh. where, you know, it was a waiter job. I left on bad terms. They told me, well, when you come back, you know, a lot of college kids would come back and want to get their job back. And, and they, they said, we're not going to hire you back. Ouch. My parents, my parents were all upset. And it was just immature, thinking I'm, I'm, a, I'm a cool kid, you know, pulling gags and stuff at the end. Did you mouth off to somebody, Ryan? Is that what happened? No, just practical jokes and mm. hijinks, if you will. Hijinks will ensue. They will. Yes. So we're doing movie bosses, and we left this sort of open to interpretation because movie bosses can be, like a lot of people think when they hear bosses, the office setting. We're reviewing a movie this week that has the most famous crime boss maybe in history. Yes, that's right, Ryan. We are reviewing Capone, the new Tom Hardy joint from Josh Trank, and uh, it's a doozy, doozy of a boss movie. Yes, it is a doozy of a a boss movie. The boss theme also ties in with the guest that we have this week, Robert Jury, the writer and director of Working Man, a new movie that is out on video on demand. And it is about a factory worker, in which case the factory actually closes. Yeah, that's right. He can't let it go. Uh, It's a loose tie in there as well with with, um, bosses involved. And we are recording during a thunderstorm. So if you hear the occasional... Crash of thunder, that's not a sound effect, Jawheads. No, it's getting quite scary. (laughs) It's pretty cool. It is. In honor of working, man, I figured this would be a good time for you to take Bob on in factory movie trivia. Oh, okay. Let's see if I can manufacture a win. Ooh, I like where you're going with that. Plus, we have some Hollywood headlines we're going to get to. And let us not forget that it is Steve Carell month here on Cinema Jaw. So let's start there, Matt, with a Steve Carell fact. How about this one, Ryan? In the 2011 romantic comedy, Crazy Stupid Love, the nameplate on Emily Weaver's desk had a second line, associate to the vice president, not associate vice president. This is undoubtedly a reference to Carell's television series, The Office, in which there was a running gag about Dwight Schrute having the title assistant to the regional manager, not assistant regional manager. (laughs) I have to be honest. I have not watched that many episodes of The Office. I do miss my TV from time to time. This is one of them that I have missed. When I do catch an episode, I think it's hilarious, but uh, I'm not all up to date on The Office. No, me neither. I'm not like um, a completist, an office completist, but I've watched enough to see the brilliance. Have you ever watched any of the Ricky Gervais, uh, original British? Never. No. It's actually worth it. You know, there's a reason they remade it for American audiences. It's a damn good show as well. So check that one out. Uh, Sticking with the Steve Carell theme, uh, again, we had uh, asked for feedback on people's favorite Steve Carell performance and movie. And we got some more feedback, don't we, Matt? We did. Let's open that mailbag. This one from past guest, John Hammerly, good friend of the show, wrote to say, favorite Steve Carell has got to be Brick Tamland from Anchorman. A couple of reasons for this. Number one, Anchorman is one of my top five comedies of all time. It so stands out for that reason. 
Two, Carell is often best in supporting roles, and his Brick character is a work of comedic genius. In a movie full of dumb characters, Carell is perhaps the dumbest, and he steals every scene he's in. And three, I love Lamp. Thanks, John Hammerly. <laughs> I love Lamp. Getting a lot of love. I love Lamp. <laughs> uh, we heard from Chris Lee, Canadian jawhead. He says, hey, guys, hope all is well with you and your families. So glad that Cinema Jaw is producing weekly podcasts. It keeps some normalcy to our lives. Thanks for that. I have to say that I always thought Steve Carell was a funny guy, but when I first saw his performance in Little Miss Sunshine, I was blown away. I thought, wow, this guy can really act. I've actually been thinking of rewatching that film lately. Maybe I will now. I've got plenty of time, right? Your favorite Canadian, Chris Lee. Awesome. Thanks, Chris. And last but certainly not least, fellow critic here in Chicago, Eric Childress wrote in to say, Hey team, hope you are all doing well. My personal favorite remains The 40-Year-Old Virgin, one of my favorite comedies ever that is also the best of all the recent male bonding films, guys being guys without ever feeling icky. There's a decency at the core of that movie, and it is also such an incredible comedic ensemble. People will look back on it as one of the milestones of comedy in the way that it really brought that Apatow and Co. brand of humor to the forefront. Many of the great comedies since owe a debt to it. Plus, because the movie was a hit, it turned people over to The Office, which was a new show on the verge of being lost to history. This film ignited it, and we also got one of the great sitcoms to survive because of it. P.S. The whole light smashing scene, I remember doing that with other guys at the first video store where I worked. So when I saw it in the movie, I lost it. Awesome. I don't remember that scene. What's he talking about? I, I don't remember that scene off the top of my head either. It's been a long time since I've seen 40-Year-Old Virgin. Me too. I gotta, now I got to rewatch that one. But I also like that Chris Lee brought up Little Miss Sunshine. It's been a long time since I've seen that film as well. So I got some Corral catching up to do. For sure. That's what's fun about celebrating these uh, actors every month. Gives us reason to go back and, and look at their filmography, yeah. which I love to do. Yep, revisit some of these classics. Yeah. Great to hear from the Jawheads. I agree. If you want to chime in on your favorite Steve Carell performance, write us feedback at cinemajaw.com, and we will get that out onto the podcast. It is a jam-packed jaw here, Matt. So without further ado, we bring in our guest. Robert Jury has written and directed a new movie entitled Working Man, which is available now on video on demand, wherever you can find movies. Bob, welcome to Cinema Jaw. Thank you, guys. Pleasure to be here with you. It's always a little strange um, putting out a movie right now in, in these uh, COVID times we're living through. Must be doubly strange getting this thing out there. It is. Uh, we were supposed to be a, a movie that went into theaters at the end of March. And because coronavirus had other ideas with our movie and everybody else's. Uh, we released last week, May 5th, but we're really pleased. I mean, in one way, when you have a smaller movie like ours, it levels the playing field a little bit because now we're on demand with the big guys and sure. people can kind of pick and choose as they see this stuff across their screen, right? So now we don't have to maybe compete with the giant marketing budgets of the studios and people who are looking for just good movies or good stories that they, they can relate to can maybe find us, can maybe find Working Man. So we feel like our timing's pretty good, to be quite honest. Do you want to give us sort of the, the elevator pitch of Working Man, like the back of the box blurb, if you will? 
Sure. So Working Man is about an aging factory worker who continues to go back to his factory job, even though the plant is closed down. It stars Peter Garrity, who most people would recognize through countless films and television shows, most recently Sneaky Pete, uh, Ray Donovan on Showtime. Talia Shire plays his long-suffering wife. We all know Talia from The Godfather and Rocky films, two-time Oscar nominee. She's a brilliant actress. And the third lead is Billy Brown, who just tonight is actually wrapping up his series finale in How to Get Away with Murder on ABC with Viola Davis. So we've got, we have a great cast and everybody else was cast out of the Chicago area where we shot for 20 days back in 2018. Those are three sort of heavyweights to get, and this is your first movie that you've directed. So how, how did you go about casting these three? Well, my senior producing partner on the project, a man named Clark Peterson, I met. This project went through the Film Independent Talent Labs in Los Angeles. It was picked as a screenplay and then moved into their director's lab. I did that. This was a decade ago, and I met Clark, was introduced to him Clark was the producer of a movie called Monster with Charlize Theron a number of years yeah. ago that got a lot of attention and, and won an Oscar for, for Charlize back when that movie came out. And we tried a lot of different <laughs> ways to get this movie made over the past decade. And finally, an angel investor swooped in, believed in what we were doing in the script, put the money down and off to the races we went. Did the film festival circuit all of last year. And here we are now <laughs> available for everybody to watch in 2020 in the weirdest of times, right? I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable, our timing with our story at this moment. At least you got the festival run in before all this. It, like you said earlier, the timing almost kind of worked out because now people are hitting the streams looking for good stuff. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, we feel incredibly fortunate. There's a lot of filmmakers who I just feel for right now that are, you know, in our place, we were a year ago, right? Just starting to get into the festival circuit and that excitement of being able to go out and experience these venues across the country. Now it's it's either online or they're out right canceled. We were very fortunate to get out when we were and when we did in 2019. So it's sometimes it's just dumb luck, right? And as far as our story goes, it's, as you mentioned, it, it's something that we feel is pretty timely with the moment with so many people unemployed and can relate to the topics of the movie, the themes. Yeah. One of the things the movie definitely gets right is is the feeling of uh, small town America, the working man title and going to work every day and having that pride and that purpose in life to go to the job every single day. Uh, did you grow up in sort of small town America and did this story come from that experience? Yeah, I was I was an Iowa farm kid. So I grew up close to uh, river towns, the Des Moines River, the Mississippi River. Saw a lot of my friends and family go to work in factories. So this was this was very familiar and what I would hope is authentic portrait of of that experience. I you know, you just don't see those those types of folks portrayed in movies and television. At least I felt like not authentically very often. I'm really proud of of what we've been able to do and when I've had the opportunity to screen this for people I know from back home and people that can kind of sniff out something that may not ring completely true. I'm really pleased with their reaction. It's, you know, very personal and familiar from what I grew up with. What was the genesis of the idea and uh, how long did it take you to come up with the screenplay? Honestly, I wrote it about 10 years ago. Right. I, I, 
I was uh, living in an old farmhouse that belonged to um, my grandparents at the time in rural Iowa. And my dad was a retired farmer, lived up the road. And he brought this article about uh, a local factory, one, in fact, that my mother had worked in as a teenager. There was talk that they might reopen it. I joked with my dad at the time. Again, this was a decade ago. I said, um, you know, what if these guys in their their pursuit to open this factory, they open up the doors and they find a worker there who never really got the memo, <laughs> still working at his job <laughs> all these years later. And just from there, the idea evolved into what working man is about a guy who just continues to go back to his job, whether it's there or not. You can see the, uh, the love and the passion that went into the project and watching as many movies as we do. A lot of times you can see one that's lacking but this one it's all over the movie so that's a great thing and it it really made me feel at at the end of the movie i don't know if you've gotten this comparison but it made me feel like warm-hearted in the way that wonderful life makes you feel at the end have you heard this no but i'll take that compliment any day that we honestly that's in my top two movies of all time so maybe there's a little frank capra steeping through there (laughs) what was it like directing these kind of like heavyweights these these are actors who have been around quite a bit was it easy to direct them or did you feel a little intimidated well i'm 50 right i turned <laughs> i turned i turned 50 this past fall so i've done a lot of commercial work and a lot of a lot of things behind the camera to i guess build my confidence but nothing quite prepares you for your first movie I wouldn't say intimidated, but look, the, the actors that I worked with, Talia and Peter and Billy, they couldn't have made it easier on me. And they quite honestly could have made it pretty difficult. Everybody knew I was a first-time director. This is my first go-around. But they came in so prepared, so genuine, so generous of uh, their time. And this is really isn't just lip service. They, they really did, I think, understand fully what they were up against. And and they were there, I would hope, chiefly because they're responding to the material. It's obviously because they're not getting a big payday. We're a small film. I had about as good of experience as any first-time director could have had with with his actors. Where I think you were most successful with this film is how the story sort of unfolds these themes one by one you're present and i don't want to give anything away but there's a theme that's presented or or something that's presented very early on the very first scene where allery is is calling out a name trying to find uh somebody in his house and can't then we kind of understand what has happened but it's left up to the imagination somewhat but you get the the feeling that that's what's affected this character made him so dour and then about halfway through the, the movie you almost feel like, well, this is the resolution. There are things happening now at the factory that could have been the ending. And then you were able to fold so much more into it. It almost has like three different resolutions, which I found incredibly satisfying and rare in these independent pictures. Like it's so rare that you get such a, an onion of a story. So I, I just wanted to say, well done. I, I really appreciated that. Yeah, thank you. Uh, the first draft you probably wouldn't have been impressed with. <laughs> the, the the story evolved over a series of years and and the one that we finally shot uh I, I was pretty happy with what we did and i'm i'm still happy looking back on it so yeah i appreciate that and where was the factory that you guys uh shot at it was a factory built in 1949 the mccray manufacturing facility which in no small amount of irony just closed itself in december of this oh, wow. 
this past year. I mean, yeah, it's, it's total life imitating art. We were there. It was an operational factory when we were there. Again, when you're dealing with a smaller budget, you can't replicate a real factory in a warehouse or try to build it in a sound state. It's not going to happen. The last of uh, the McRae folks, workers are kind of tidying up, putting the bows similar to the, the start of our movie, right? It's, it's the end of an era there. 70 plus years they'd been in business. It's a very sad irony of the reality of the times, right? Yeah. Sure. Well, like you said, maybe there's uh, one lonely worker there just just <laughs> waiting to be discovered 10 we years know of at least now. a half dozen, yeah, that are, that are still around. Absolutely. Uh, Bob, finally, we do have a lot of uh, young filmmakers who uh, listen to the podcast and write in from time to time. Uh, what kind of advice would you give uh, a first-time director, or what was something that you learned that you would pass on to someone who's looking to make their first feature? Yeah, I would say first and foremost, do your due diligence when it comes to casting. If your actors can't, <laughs> if they aren't up to the task of performing that that script that you've labored over, and sometimes, at least in my case, years, people around you, a cinematographer that can bring that to life visually, you're really going to be be behind the eight ball. Spend the extra time getting to know that cast, getting to know those people that you're going to be working with and visually what that's going to look and feel like. It will so pay off in the long run. What's coming up next for you? And if we want to send people to your website or tell them how to check out Working Man, what's the best place to send them? Best place to look is workingmanmovie.com or really Working Man Movie on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all of it. Again, we're on demand now. So if people want to take a look at the film, we're on iTunes, uh, Apple TV, Prime Video, and most of the platforms. I've got two finished screenplays and one that's a complete mess right now. And another, I don't know, it's, it's all spaghetti right <laughs> at, at, at the moment, but I, I'm feeling pretty good about a couple things I have that are, that are finished that I'm tweaking right now. And it's, we'll just see what happens once, sure. once we can all go out in the sunshine after this coronavirus thing does what it's going to do to us. And we hopefully find ourselves in a better place we can start making movies again safely and we'll see what that world looks like. Well, can't wait to yeah. see what spaghetti sticks to the wall, man. Good luck. Thank you. <laughs> again, uh, Working Man, like Bob said, is available on video on demand on all the platforms. Just search Working Man. Give it a rent. Me and Matt both have seen it. We both thoroughly enjoyed it. So write us feedback at cinemajaw.com. We'll pass those comments along to Bob. Get it right to the director. Get that feedback to him. So Bob is going to be sitting in on this entire jaw. He has his top five favorite movie bosses picked out. Before we get there, Matt, we do have a review of Capone. When you hear the name Capone and see that Tom Hardy is playing him, I guarantee you are not expecting what we got in the new film by Josh Trank. Tom Hardy is fully committed. Some scenes are so crazy, they will be talked about for years to come. But does the movie as a whole work? Matt and I got out our Tommy guns, hit the underground tunnels, and tried to find a treasure in the new film on video on demand, Capone. Do you know what the difference is between Adolf Hitler and Al Capone? Hitler's dead. Capone was like a king in Florida. He has full-blown dementia. I have reason to believe it could all be an elaborate act. What's this about? We have information that your client may have tucked away a very large sum of money. 
can drop the act now. When people hear the name Al Capone, many things rush to mind. Mobster, prohibition, machine guns, cigars, Geraldo Rivera. But a man in diapers suffering from neurosyphilis is not one of them. This is the Al Capone presented here. I figured this older Capone would just be the backdrop of him recalling his gangster days and we would get flashbacks to a time when he was the most feared and wanted crime boss in America. Not the case. Writer-director Josh Trank solely focuses on the last year of Capone's life. This after he had served a 10-year prison sentence. Suffering from mental disease, he grunts out words, has delusions, and needs constant help from his wife. We may not get flashbacks, but we do get a couple of truly bizarre dreamlike sequences. Tom Hardy goes all in, and I give him a lot of credit. If you are a Tom Hardy fan, this one is worth checking out for his performance alone. As for the film, I didn't hate it, but I think the deconstruction of the Al Capone myth Josh Trank was going for is not fully realized. Matt, this is a kind of crazy movie. I would love to know. What's your takeaway on it? First, I have to agree about Tom Hardy's performance here. Even through slightly distracting makeup, Hardy manages to convey the shell of strength that this hollow and haunted gangster is rotting inside. It's a subtle and over-the-top, physical and mental, nuanced and broad performance that may just be something we're talking about come award season. Also, I want to take a moment to compliment Josh Trank's choice of sound design and score. Credit also to the composer LP. Much of the movie plays out almost like a horror movie as we live the nightmare of a mind slowly ebbing through the eyes of Capone. This tone was only enhanced by the wonderful sound, Ryan. But but this is a weird movie, and I believe that will turn a lot of viewers off, even perhaps especially gangster and mafioso fans. There's a lot of involuntary defecation in this film. Interpret that statement however you choose. And as soon as Kyle McLaughlin shows up, you'll be double-checking the credits to make sure David Lynch's name isn't on this somewhere. It's not. This isn't a dig on Josh Trank, but bold, very bold choices are made. And at times, the movie wobbles on the tightrope of being silly and being serious. I'm not 100% sure that's what he was going for. Where it lands will be up to the individual viewer, but no one will deny that this movie is weird and fairly unique. Those aren't necessarily bad things, but they are sometimes tough sells. They sure are tough sells. And I think we start there. You brought up the fact that the people who are probably going to be maybe disappointed the most are these folks who are going in looking for a good mafia movie, looking for the latest interpretation on, on Capone. And they're, they're expecting the gangster, the, the myth that we know of Al Capone. Those people are going to literally hate this movie. Yeah. Hopefully, I mean, that's why we, we do podcasts like this so that we, we, we get the word out and people get some type of uh, idea of the film that they're going to watch. Because I, I agree with you. If, if people don't know what they're walking into with the name Capone, everything that we know about him and that Tom Hardy's playing him, I, I think sets it up for something completely different than what we get here. That's important to know going in. 
Yeah, even the trailer is pretty misleading. I think obviously Josh Trank didn't want to tip his hand and show that this movie was different. And I applaud it for being different. It's it's not what I expected. And it took me a long time after the, the credits rolled to decide, man, did I like that or not? Take that as you will. Ultimately, I did decide, yes, I like this movie. It's it's unusual, but it's it's undeniably well-created, well-crafted. The acting is great. I would say the dialogue is great, but there's really not a lot of dialogue. It's a bunch of grunts and... Yeah. But but the character of Capone, the way he's chomping on that cigar and his eyes, just the horror in his eyes the whole time. I don't know great. what they did with his eyes. Like and I'm this talking makeup. Like, yeah, like the actual eyeballs though, you know, it had that like red look like they had been really irritated. Like he had a fantastic. stroke. Yeah, I mean really fantastic. I mean that what that was awesome. The cigar later in the movie turns into a carrot. Mm. Um, that Which they, was a great point of humor in the movie, right? What is he, Bugs Bunny? <laughs> Did Which, you laugh? I was laughing oh, yeah. out loud. That was awesome. That entire image of Capone, and I had mentioned that I think Josh Trank's idea here was to sort of deconstruct the myth. I mean, all we've ever ta- heard about is that you know this Al Capone, this this huge crime boss, and he's going to focus on like the last year of his life when he's in a chair can barely move with a, a carrot in his mouth instead of a cigar grunting at what he thinks are alligators or not alligators in the water. It really knocks him down a level, Al Capone, that we think about being this tough, big, larger-than-life crime boss to see him in this situation that he is in this movie. It's pretty interesting. That observation is right on the nose, right? Because he's even listening at certain points to to radio dramas of the period where they're doing Al Capone stories and they're recreating the St. Valentine's Day massacre on the radio. And Capone is sitting there listening to these, or whether he is or isn't, we don't actually know because there's a bit of an unreliable narrator thing going on in the movie. But ostensibly, he's listening to these radio plays and reminiscing and and listening to the things that they get right and they get wrong about his own story. And yet here he sits completely debilitated and literally shitting himself. Man, they do not shy away from the poop in this movie, do they? They don't. They don't. And I mean, there's one scene in particular where where the lead up to it, I mean, there's like flies and it's just a weird scene and it's sort of scary in a way. It's almost like set up like horror and, and the, and the net result ends up being, you know, having to do with poop. And it's like, my, what the hell is going on with this film? This is so strange. Not in a bad way. I, I agree with you. I, in some way enjoyed the movie also. It's, it's not for everybody. That's for sure. If I had an issue with it is there's this plot line where he has a son that is calling. And this is a, not necessarily a, a son with his, with his wife. It's an illegitimate um, son, right? Yeah, it's an illegitimate son. And he's calling in from Cleveland. Well, after doing like research on Capone, reading another article by Josh Trank, this is really just Trank assuming that the lifestyle that Capone led, that it, it probably would have maybe had you know, something to do with producing an illegitimate son. I didn't think this went anywhere. It was looming over the entire movie. But really, what was the arc of that plot line? Did it, did it go anywhere for you? That's an interesting question, man. I didn't stop to think about that. I suppose you're right. It doesn't have a satisfactory resolution, but maybe that is the point because he doesn't get to have any satisfactory resolutions in his life because of everything that happened. But as a viewer, I don't know. I suppose... 
I don't want to give anything away here, but there's a phone call that's received not by Capone toward the end of the movie from Cleveland. That gave it a little bit of closure to me. Like there's a little bit of recognition that this person exists and is going to be taken in or at least listened to. I don't know. Yeah, I feel you, especially the whole thing with the little boy and the gold balloon and and the wounds on the stomach that were shown. Like that was left a little unclear. Again, this is like David Lynch level weird. So mm-hmm. even for Lynch, I would say that this is weird. This is like blue velvet on acid weird. <laughs> yeah. There is one particular sequence that sees Tom Hardy wielding a, a gold Tommy gun while wearing a diaper. <laughs> and it, if that doesn't sort of right. tell you what, what we're talking about here, it is just bizarre uh, in, in somewhat a good way, but in, in, all, in another way where it's just like, okay, I don't know exactly what to make of what I just saw, you know? Right. Well, how, how many times in your life are you going to say Tom Hardy wielding a gold Tommy gun in a diaper? <laughs> oh man. Ultimately I didn't hate the movie. I didn't love the movie. It's a, it, it, extremely difficult movie to recommend, but I think talking about this, if jawheads are listening to it and they realize, okay, it's strange. And if you know that going in, I think that's going to help people appreciate the film more. I liked it. I'm positive on the movie. Uh, I think we, we didn't mention Matt Dillon, who, who puts in a, a really interesting cameo. Also really, really weird, the way his character is introduced. Anyway. Uh, yeah. it, it... No, I, on that note, because I, I actually wrote this down in, in my notes, I was totally flummoxed on why, why you would be introduced that way. And I'm talking about the, the actual scene where... The phone rings? Yeah, the phone rings, that particular scene. Like, okay, once we find out now the reveal a, a little bit later in the movie about Matt Dillon's character, then why would he have been introduced that way makes absolutely no sense. I have no idea. Right, like, because who was seeing that, right? Was, right, exactly, yeah. precisely. I guess it was a red herring to throw us off, and, and maybe he, I don't know, right. This is, this is a really weird movie. Sometimes I think it's bordering on nonsense at times <laughs> but there's no denying that that it's also magnetic at times oh, it is i mean we needed a movie like this um because you, you get these every once in a while that come out you know throughout the year and everybody's like oh they're just keep talking about it and as soon as i saw capone i i went to twitter and just seeing you know the people that i follow other film critics like their reaction, it had me laughing reading everybody else's remarks. So just from that, the entertainment that I got from watching the movie, how bizarre it was, and then seeing everybody's sort of quick take reactions and also just watching the film was a complete joy. So I had fun on, on that level as well. Me too, man. This one's sort of getting mixed marks, which makes sense. It is a tough recommend, but I liked it. You got, you got yeah. a, a poster quote, Ryan? I went with... Capone deconstructed and wearing a diaper. That's good. I went really traditional straight-laced for my quote. Josh Trank evokes David Lynch in a fever dream of an American icon decomposing. I like it. How many jaws? All right, man, I'm struggling with this. I'll be honest with you, man, because I, I was at three jaws with this movie. And even in the course of this conversation, I was like, no, wait, this is not three. I'm going to stick with it. I'm going to say three jaws. It's weird. It's wild, but damn it, man. It it got me talking. It got me thinking. It got me to go on Wikipedia and go down the Capone rabbit hole. I liked it. I did. Well, I'll give you that. Even talking about it here, 
reflecting on how much fun that I've, I've had discussing it and reading other people's opinions on it. I was actually going to go two Jaws. I'll go two and a half Jaws. Tough one to recommend, but I didn't hate it. It's one to see and experience and talk about with friends. So from that point, give it a spin. Tom Hardy, gold machine gun in a diaper. <laughs> Enough said. Enough said. Three Jaws from Matt K. Two and a half Jaws from Rye the Movie Guy. Obviously, Al Capone, one of the biggest crime bosses in movie history. Taking that in consideration and also taking the fact that we have on Robert Jury, writer and director of Working Man, we came up with our top five movie bosses. And when we said our top five movie bosses, we left this open completely to interpretation because a lot of bosses are depicted in movies as mean, grouchy, and sometimes that's fun. So we'll see what everybody picked here. I was pretty traditional with my list. Bob's getting us started. Bob, was this an easy list for you to come up with or difficult? No, this was hard. I, you know, because I think there's bosses almost in every film. So mine may not be the more traditional bosses. I, I love the Coen brothers as much as anybody. So as in honor of the two Coen brothers, I have two of their bosses representing both Coen brothers at number five. Francis McDormand as uh, Marge Gunderson in Fargo and also an, a nod to the late great character actor Trey Wilson, Nathan Arizona Sr. in Raising Arizona. Do you remember wow. that? Do you remember oh, him? Of course. Of course. Okay. I think it's a good place to start. Again, maybe not the most traditional of bosses, but um, in my book, top of the class, or at least number five in my category. No I like doubt. It. I do too. And I, I just love how much smarter Marge is than uh, it seems everybody else on that uh, police force. <laughs> oh, yeah. She sure is, right. Yeah, you betcha. Over to me at number five, I've got a bit of a two for Ronnie Cox just sort of carved out this little niche for himself in the late 80s early 90s playing these villainous bosses like in RoboCop he played Cohagen who was denying the folks of Mars their air and letting them get mutated by the cosmic rays but I think he he really <laughs> nailed it I think he hit a peak in RoboCop as Dick Jones just crystallized all of the stuffed suit a-holes that you had met walking down any street in Manhattan just that guy carrying a briefcase with a brick phone to his ear. He embodied that so well. And he was just a homicidal maniac to boot. Great boss. I mean, Ronnie Cox, you could really pick a few of his performances, but Dick Jones, I think he just nailed that 80s smarm perfectly. I thought you were going to go with Beverly Hills Cop. Yeah, right? Bogomil. Taggart and, and uh, I forget, Judge Reinhold played Judge the other Reinhold guy. Reinhold was the actor, yes. Yeah. yeah. But, but I, I'm pretty sure it was Bogomil. Right, Bogomil was. That running. sounds like it. Yes, right. strong choice. I would have to say coming in. Yeah, so I forget that he was in all of those. Now that you guys mentioned him, like, yeah, he really did have the, the the market cornered there in the late '80s. I wanted to do a crime boss on my list, but I thought I, I wanted to go sort of fun with my crime boss, and so I did that with my number five. This is a man that would say that he's a number five to nobody. I'm going with <laughs> Doctor Evil, played by Mike Myers. <laughs> in the Austin Powers movies. <laughs> He's the perfect crime boss opposite Austin Powers, obviously played by the same actor. But I mean, you got the $1 million, the lasers, mini-me. The guy has it all. It's, it's hilarity, the, the pinky to the mouth. 
everything that Dr. Evil does and says throughout those movies is hysterical. So he sits at number five of my favorite bosses. I would say the character is even better than Austin Powers, certainly less annoying. He's, he's really the, the meat and bones of that franchise for sure. Dr. Evil was the best part. <laughs> number four for me, I'm going to shift a little back into the dramatic end of things from all the president's men, Jason Robards. He plays uh, the executive editor, Ben Bradley of the Washington Post. This is the sort of movie that I can sort of pick up at any time. I don't know why in particular, because it's, it's not even a traditional narrative in a lot of ways. Uh, William Goldman was the brilliant screenwriter. The music is actually done by David Shire, who is the former husband of Talia Shire, the, who was in Working Man in, in my movie. But I love all the presence men. I love Jason Robards. He just has a command as the boss in this busy newspaper room. You believe it. Perfection. Perfection as a surly newspaper guy. I, I agree. Uh, stars for Robards. And you know, this was a movie I had to catch up with, you know, at some point in, in my time. And I remember when I watched it, I, I turned uh, to my friend who I was watching it with at the time and I said, well, it doesn't even feel like they're making a movie. And that's the ultimate compliment. It, it really feels like you're watching them in a newsroom and trying to break this story. You forget you're watching a movie. I love that. This is where I have a dame on my list. I mean, the, the rank dame, Dame Judi Dench as M in the new Bond franchise, the Daniel Craig Bond franchise. Until we got Dame Judi Dench in this role, Bond had never really had any interesting co-workers, really. They were all just cannon fighter, except for Q, who just gave him gadgets. He was kind of like silly. And of course, Money Penny, who he endlessly harasses at the office. But really, nobody above Bond to tell him what to do until we get M. And, and there's almost a... I, I won't even say almost. There's, there's a love between the two of them, as we get to see quite well in Skyfall. The dichotomy between the two characters, I think, brought a new layer to Bond that wasn't there before. And it's easy to write these off as cheesy spy movies, but Judy Dench just brought something to it that wasn't there. I think she elevated it. I agree with you. I'm just not so familiar with all, all those old Bond names that you are throwing around. I love that you know the Bonds much better than I do. I haven't seen them all. How do you not know Q and Moneypenny? Those yeah, are the I don't know names I, names. I don't Penny. know. I mean, Jesus, Ryan, really? You don't know Money Penny? I don't, to be absolutely honest. But I love the name, Money Penny. For my number four, this is a small character in inside movies that pops up more for almost comedic relief in, in a lot of ways. When we said we were doing movie bosses, for some reason, this character popped up and I had to put him on my list. He's played by J.K. Simmons in the Spider-Man movies. I'm going with J. Jonah Jameson, who... <laughs> is Peter Parker's boss at the Daily Bugle. I rewatched a, a scene today in which he is actually gives the name Dr. Octopus to Doc Ock. They're talking about this guy's last name, Dr. Octavius, having eight limbs. What are the odds? And, and one of the writers says, we should call him Dr. Octopus. And he's like, ah, oh, that's silly. And then, you know, a minute later, they're like, they're like, you got a name for him? He's like, how about Dr. Octopus? And everybody loves it. <laughs> But but then right after that, uh, Peter Parker walks in, and I love that they have an exchange, and he says, go shoot these pictures, and Parker says, can I get an advance? And there's this pause, and then he just starts laughing. <laughs> That's him. He's always looking down at, at Peter Parker, getting the work, getting those those guys out onto the field, paying them very cheaply. Kind of, uh, it was also a launching pad for... J.K. Simmons, wasn't it? I mean, he, he really just blew up with a lot of roles after that. 
Am I right? Sure. I think Juno I might have come first. We'll throw that in the jaw box, Matt. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Into our three as we go. You mentioned it's a wonderful life earlier. So this, we're coming back around to that, I feel like. It's, and to me, this is kind of a toss-up for a, a boss because Jimmy Stewart, he plays George Bailey, who's the head of the Bailey Brothers Building and Loan. But you also have another tyrannical boss in Lionel Barrymore as Mr. Potter. You can't have one without the other. So again, it's, it's a split vote for me. It's maybe my favorite movie of all time, just because I think it'd be so almost impossible to see the, get this type of movie get made now, particularly at a studio. It's so unusual, so special. And as far as bosses are concerned, these this is good versus evil, isn't it? Sure right is. Wrong in, in very clear forms. What's not to love about Jimmy Stewart and Lionel Barrymore in this movie? It's 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 almost perfect in my eyes. Agreed. I mean, it's, it certainly stood the test of time. And uh, you, you can turn on this movie today, and I think it's just as fresh as the day it came out. Yeah, Watch it every year. All right, that swings it back around to me. And I'm just going to go ahead and say, when you have a boss who is actually Satan, I think that's probably the worst boss you could have. That honor goes to John Milton, played by the great Al Pacino in Devil's Advocate. It's a Keanu Reeves movie. I, I guess Devil's Advocate is kind of dismissible in a way, but for some reason, it's just stuck in my imagination over the years. There's a really good performance in there from Pacino. The supporting cast is great as well. And I think when he starts talking about God and God's failings in that monologue scene, it's pretty special and unnerving. And I don't know if anybody but Pacino could have pulled that role off. Maybe, maybe Jack Nicholson, I guess. But he sort of already had his turn in Witches of Eastwick. Pacino's Devil, I think, one of the best Satans in cinema history. It's definitely the best part of that movie. Yes. For sure. My number three, again, when, when you look at this movie, it's, it's a smaller part in the film. But boy, do I love this guy as a boss. And I remember seeing this movie when I was just a, a young kid and thinking, that's the kind of guy I want to grow up and, and work for. And it's odd that I would say that, but the movie is about a, a young kid becoming a man. I'm speaking to Tom Hanks in the movie Big and his boss in the movie, McMillan, who is played sure. by Robert Loggia. He has two fantastic moments in this movie. One in which he's talking to Tom Hanks and he says, you just don't see that in a marketing report, to which Tom Hanks <laughs> says, what's a marketing report? And he says, exactly. And, <laughs> and then, <laughs> of course, the, the classic moment when you think of Big, you think of that wonderful scene of the two of them on that giant piano in the toy store to think that you're having that much fun with your boss and that your boss gets you. I just love that bond between boss and and worker that we see between the two of them right there. Well, it's almost more of a father-son moment, especially on the piano there. There's, mm -hmm. there's, there's some of that going on in Big. Do we ever actually see Josh Baskin's father in that movie? I know we see his mom. Never. We always see the, the mom lamenting and wailing, right? If memory serves me, I think she's a single parent. If she isn't, we never see dad. Okay. Uh, we're we're throwing that in the jaw box also. We'll look it up and get, get the yeah, facts right. That's a good observation. You know, Robert Loja substituting for dad. Okay, I'm up. You knew it was going to land here somewhere, right? So the godfather, our leading lady, Talia Shire, was, was in all the god, was in the godfather movies, was nominated in the godfather 2 
as Connie Corleone. But my choice is not Marlon Brando. I like Al Pacino here. We're going to go. Pacino is really winning the day when it comes to bosses, it seems like. But um, he, as Michael, right, the son, he becomes the boss in The Godfather. So this is the real evolution that happens in the film. So sorry for anyone who hasn't seen it, but I, I don't know. If you're listening to this, you've probably at least seen The Godfather. It's a safe bet. Safe bet. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. It has to belong in the top five. And it, maybe it's being robbed of its top spot, but I put it at two. Uh, Al Pacino, The Godfather. I think you're right about Pacino. He he sort of has this commanding presence, like even in The Irishman, right? Where he's Hoffa. He's he's a boss in that as well. He plays a lot of bosses and he, he does it well. All right, so number two is where I had J. Jonah Jameson, Ryan. And I think the thing that you, you missed, the one detail, is that Peter has such this interesting relationship with Jameson because J. Jonah Jameson hates Spider-Man, and Peter is Spider-Man, but he's still got to get pictures of all these superhero antics and all the things happening in New York City and bring it to J. Jonah Jameson, who's just going to use that to smear Peter, to smear Spider-Man. That's what makes his relationship with Jameson just that much sweeter, you know, because he's sort of trapped between a rock and a hard place. He's got to be the hero. He's still got to make bread and he's still got to report to this total jerk who hates him <laughs> openly and is going to use all of his work to make his life worse in the long run. I, I was wondering if he'd be on your list. I'm glad to see him on there, Matt. Um, my number two, I went with a, an evil boss. I don't know if this film still holds up. It's been a little while since I, I've watched it from start to finish. I've seen scenes here and there. But I remember when I saw it, I was a bit younger and, and was really taken by it. The movie is The Firm. Tom Cruise is the young lawyer. And the boss here is, the character's name is uh, Avery Toller, played by Gene Hackman. He is, oh, yeah. the, he is the guy who runs this law firm who is uh, basically, it seems everything seems too good to be true. Uh, they're going to pay off like his loans. They're going to get him working at this law firm. They go down on a, a vacation and Tom Cruise cheats on his wife and that's used as blackmail eventually in the film against him. And of course, this all comes out that this law firm is representing a bunch of mobsters in Chicago. And so Gene Hackman is this like evil presence. It seems like he, it's too good to be true. It has to be too good to be true and and it is that's the case gene hackman my number two like i say i haven't seen the firm in a long time it's such a great movie i i think it was Sidney pollock who directed it. it was yeah i love movies that totally capture the feel i mean you just you feel completely transported and there you're in memphis for that movie the music the vibe man you are just right there in the heart of the the mid-south i love it too that's a great pick i love that pick. awesome Thank you. Thank you. Here we are at Cinema Jaw. It's our number ones. Bob, what do you got sitting there? A little untraditional maybe, but I think number one boss in the history of movies, the great Clevon Little as Sheriff Barton Blazing Saddles. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Nobody wants him as the boss. He comes into town and completely owns it. He is the boss. He left us way too soon. I think Levon Little had a ton of talent. There was so much left in his career. It was taken from us too early. And But Blazing Saddles and Clevon Little, that's number one. And I just have to say this, uh, my, produ <laughs> my producing partner, Lovell Holder, I'd be remiss if I didn't give this to Lovell. Meryl Streep as Miranda Priestly in The Devil Wears Prada. That's a strange twofer, right? Clevon Little. Yeah. Two great bosses to end for me, I think. Those are two amazing ones. I bet you Ryan's probably got Priestly on 
his list at number one. For Sorry, my number, I'm glad you did. Uh, for for my number one, the character that popped into my mind as soon as we started talking about this was Lumberg. Of course, you know I'm gonna have to ask you to go That's ahead great. and yeah, come in on Sunday. I mean, yes, Lumberg is sort of just the absolute archetype of that crappy boss carrying around his his mug with his tie and his crappy shirt just his office weird where his obsession with all the the little bureaucracies and news and and little papers the way you have to file things in the office he's the best office jerk ever he's <laughs> the character is an absolute icon agree a very worthy number one percent Good choice. You won't have a lot of argument from a lot of people, I'm sure, with, with Lumberg at number one. That's, that's solid. Well, my number one, Bob, stole some of my thunder. It's Miranda Priestly, Meryl Streep. Told you. <laughs> I'm so sorry. But uh, hey, level holder, my producing partner will love you for it. He, <laughs> I'm, I'm never going to hear the end of it, probably. You know, I mean, when you're the editor-in-chief of Runway Magazine, right? I mean, she's so intimidating. I mean, one of her most iconic roles. And that really says something when you're talking about the career of Meryl Streep. It was already at a point where we didn't think we'd see, you know, something so iconic from her. Maybe again, because she had done so much prolific work. And then here comes Devil Wears Prada. And in my mind, when I, I think of the great Meryl Streep, I immediately go to Miranda Priestly and how intimidating that character is on screen and just how much fun that is too, to see these other characters around her, Anne Hathaway, Emily Blunt, have to squirm all around because everybody's so nervous walking on eggshells around her. It's, it's fantastic. It's, I love that character. I love that movie. I do too. I think we've all known someone like that. You know, that's what makes it such, and Lumberg and, and a lot of these characters. We, we know that Miranda Priestly type who uses his or her power and enjoys watching people squirm on the end of the hook. We've all had that boss. For sure. Yeah. It's universal, isn't it? It, it is. is. <laughs> all right. What we're going to do here is uh, take a break. When we come back, we got some Hollywood headlines. Plus, Bob is taking Matt on in factory movie trivia. Stick with us. Hey Jawheads, Matt Kay here. In honor of Steve Carell, we take a look back at this wonderful scene from Little Miss Sunshine in which Carell is able to find the humor even in tragedy. Why did you want to kill yourself? No, don't answer the question, Frank. Richard. Don't answer it. Richard. He's not going to answer the question, Frank. I wanted Richard. to kill myself because I was He's very sick. unhappy. He's a sick man. He's a sick in his head man. Richard. But I'm sorry. I don't think it's an appropriate conversation for a seven-year-old. Well, she's going to find out anyway. Oh, okay. Go on, Frank. Why were you unhappy? Uh, well, there are a lot of reasons. Um, mainly, though, I fell in love with someone... Who didn't love me back? Who? One of my grad students. I was very much in love with him. Him? It was a boy? And you fell in love with the boy? Yes, I did. Very much so. That's silly. You're right. It was silly. It was very, very silly. There's another word for it. Yeah. So, that's when you tried to kill yourself? Well, no. The boy that I was in love with fell in love with another man, Larry Sugarman. Who's Larry Sugarman? Larry Sugarman is perhaps the second most highly regarded Proust scholar in the U.S. Who's number one? That would be me, Rich. 
So, that's one. No. Uh, what happened was I was a bit upset. So I said some things that I shouldn't have said, and I did some things that I shouldn't have done, and subsequently I was fired from my job and forced to move out of my apartment and move into a motel. And that's when you tried to... Well, no. Actually, all of that was okay. What happened was two days ago, the MacArthur Foundation, in its infinite wisdom, awarded a genius grant to Larry Sugarman. And that's when I... Decided to check out early. Yes, yes. And I failed at that as well. Olive, the important thing to understand here is that Uncle Frank gave up on himself. He made a series of foolish choices. I'm sorry, and he gave up on himself, which is something that winners never do. And we are back on Cinema Job. Hanging out with Robert Jury, who is the writer and director of Working Man, which is now available on video on demand wherever you can rent movies. So please give it a spin, support independent cinema, and let us know what you thought. Write us feedback at cinemajaw.com. We'll pass that on to Bob. And uh, Bob, you know, we're celebrating Steve Carell all month of, of May. And I forgot to ask you at the top interview what your favorite Steve Carell performance is. You know, it's hard to get beyond The Office, right? And where we all began to know and love Steve Carell, of course. And, and uh, for those folks that are in Chicago, probably before that, Second City and everything that he did there. But for me, the, the moment when you discovered that Wow, there's a lot here under the hood with Mr. Carell is in Foxcatcher. True story, uh, as memory serves, about uh, Mr. DuPont and Mm -hmm. the wrestling dynasty that he created out there on his farm. Unbelievable. He's another one of these, I I think, in a line of, of great comedic actors like a Robin Williams that can also do drama in a very serious way. I'm glad you're celebrating him. He's He's worthy of your, your attention. That's a good observation about Robin Williams as well, because it's, it's tough to find a comparison for Steve Carell, but that's a fair comparison, I would say. All right, Matt, before we get to Hollywood headlines and before we play some trivia, we did throw a couple items into the jaw box. Let's open up that jaw box. Matt, the first one we threw in there was concerning J.K. Simmons. And I think it was Bob had uh, said, you know, he had gained a lot of, notoriety in spider-man and then you blurted out you thought juno well bob was right spider-man came out in 2002 juno not until 2007 it was well accomplished by 2007 he was you're right and and let's not forget those uh farmers commercials that he's doing i mean that's really bringing it to the next level He won the Oscar, still doing the Farmers commercial. Hey, why not? Why not? Who are we to criticize? The other uh, question we threw in there was the father shown in the movie Big. Matt, we don't have our normal producer. Obviously, we would have Pat normally in, in there digging up these facts. During the break, I did the best research I could find, and I couldn't find yes or no. We're just going to have to watch Big and figure out if the father is actually shown in the movie. I would be willing to put a $5 bet down right now that says there is no father shown in the movie Big. Me too. You see the mother, Mercedes Rule, great actress, but to my knowledge, no dad. I'm going with that. But we'll, we'll double check for the jawheads and come yeah. back with an answer on social yeah. media. 
Before we close the jaw box, honorable mentions on your favorite movie, Boss, if you had to name one. Did you have an extra one listed there, Bob? Honorable mention goes to Mr. Brian Doyle Murray in a twofer as a boss in both Christmas Vacation and Caddyshack. <laughs> Those are great picks, actually. Uh, he was, he's a great boss, right? I mean, he is the boss that is, he is you know, abducted at the end of Christmas vacation. Christmas vacation by cousin Eddie and then uh, Caddyshack. He's the guy that runs the Caddyshack. It's, he's a much thinner version of himself there, a younger version, but nonetheless, I think a very honorable mention as boss. It's a good no one. Doubt. I like that pick. Matt? Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, you know, the famous uh, first, first prize is a set of steak knives. Second mm-hmm. prize is you're fired. Alec Baldwin, right? Yes. The great Alec Baldwin. Did he not get the Oscar for that, Ryan? He did not, no. But he was nominated, correct? Uh, I believe so. For only about five minutes or, or so worth of screen time, which is like just seared indelibly into your brain, the rest of the movie, yeah, it's a good movie, but we don't remember it like we remember that scene. And you know, guys, I have heard the rumor that was actually written in by David Mamet just for the film. I was on the fence about that one to include him because it was in my, in my top five because Alec Baldwin is so, so good. It's a great performance. Yep. Yeah. Well, I'd, I'd hate to do this to you guys, but uh, my honorable mention actually just makes your guys look like small cookies it's, here. It's the boss of our honorable mentions? <laughs> my honorable mention is, is another crime boss. I'm going with the mother of the Fratellis in The oh, Goonies. Wow. Wow, she you did. Her, and she Ramsey. Bosses, <laughs> yeah. And yep. Ramsey, right? Yeah, before yep. she was thrown from a train, she was she was the mother of the Fratellis, and she bosses her sons around like crazy. I just remember being so scared of uh, Mother Fratelli. Can I can I like do a total like jerk like name drop thing right now? So our movie Working Man was when it was on the film festival circuit this past year. I really geeked out in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, at the Fort Lauderdale International Film Festival because. Talia Shire and I were paired with another movie that had Joe Pantoliano in it. Who, oh, yeah. Right? He's, he's in The Goonies, right? He's one he's of the Fatalis, yeah. He's in everything. Everything that I remember growing up in, such a nice guy. I always feel like it's nice to report or you hear that the people that you sort of admire in movies turn out to be pretty decent people. So love my experience with Joe. So I, I'm, I'm happy to hear your pick of Ann Ramsey. That's, that's <laughs> tremendous. A great boss. All right. Let's close this jaw box, Matt. All right, Matt, we got a couple Hollywood headlines here. Uh, the first one is this. George Miller is planning to expand the Mad Max universe with a prequel movie based on Charlize Theron's Furiosa from 2015's Fury Road. In an interview with the New York Times, the director said the film is an origin story and he's searching for an actress in her 20s to take over the role. Your thoughts? Honestly, I'd be a little worried because Mad Max Fury Road is an absolute masterpiece. I don't know if George Miller has another one left in the tank, so to speak. But, you know, I'm willing to be wrong. Yeah, well, the pun was firmly intended. Plus, I don't really want to see another actress take on the role, the role of Furiosa. I mean, that's so Charlize Theron. She brought that to life. I don't even know if that's fair, frankly. Mm. So I don't know how I feel about this one, honestly. But that said, I mean, Jesus, of course I'd love another Mad Max movie. All right, how about this one, you guys? 
Call Me By Your Name filmmaker will direct reboot of Scarface for Universal Pictures. Joel Cohen and, and Ethan Cohen wrote the latest version of the script. Look, I like the Cohen brothers just as much. I mean, Bob said it at the beginning, like who doesn't like the Cohen brothers, right? But some movies I just feel you need to leave alone and Scarface is one of them. I, I have, I'm not eager at all to see a reboot. Well, here's one thing that a lot of people may not know is Brian De Palma's Scarface is technically a remake, right? I mean, it's, it is not cut Dang. from whole cloth, right? He certainly made it his own. And boy, did he. I kind of agree with you, Ryan, that Scarface, Tony Montana should be left where it is. I don't know. I would love to see the Coen brothers take this on. In the tradition of what we saw with, with the last Scarface re remake, I think the Coen brothers will set it in a very unique and different environment. It'll be a different feeling movie. It'll be the Scarface for the next generation. Uh, that's true anytime i anytime i've ever doubted what these guys are just masters period very rarely will they disappoint if they're going to take this on i think it's going to be done with the utmost care and skill i would see it i'd be first in line there we go all right matt it brings us to trivia we like to end on a, on a fun trivia segment here and in honor of working man i decided to play factory movie trivia it works like this bob you're our guest you get to choose if you want to go first let matt k go first there are steals and if you get hung up on any questions you get one rescue rescue me ryan i have clues to all the questions bob they start off easy that's a hint okay then i'll go first let's start easy question one in factory movie trivia roger and me is a documentary about ford closing factories in michigan who made roger and me that would be michael moore Final answer. One to nothing, Bob. One to nothing, Bob. Question two over to Matt K. Matt, speaking of documentaries, this documentary won the Oscar last year. It was about a Chinese company reopening a factory here in America. Name it. Wait, you won the Oscar last year for best documentary? Right. This year, whatever. The last Oscars is what I mean. Foxconn? I'll steal. Can I steal, Ryan? <laughs> That is incorrect, Matt K. Bob, you got a chance for a steal here and to take a commanding two-to-nothing lead. What was the name of that documentary? For the commanding two-to-nothing lead, uh, I'll, I'll go with American Factory. That is correct, American Factory. It was produced by the Obamas, Matt K. This is one I'm sure you missed. but I did miss should. that one, but it's about Foxconn. Am I right? Or no. am I wrong? It's not. Oh, okay. I don't even know what Foxconn is. Foxconn is a huge Chinese company. They have factories all over the world. They notably manufacture iPhones and other high-end electronics. Yeah. No, you could that. be right about that, Matt. Because uh, it, <laughs> it's, yeah, the, the Chinese influence plays a large part of that, that documentary. It I does. See it. I got to see it. Yeah. Yep. It's, it's two to nothing, Bob. Commanding lead here in question three is back over to Bob. Speaking of Oscars, Sally Field won one for her role in this 1979 film in which she pushed for unions at her job. That would be Norma Ray. Three to nothing, Bob. Commanding lead at, at this point. See, question I told what? you, Bob. I told you. <laughs> Question four over to Matt K. Matt, Gene... Where can I say I'm old? I, I, I know this. <laughs> Matt, Gene Wilder played Willy Wonka 
in 1971's Chocolate Factory film. Who played him in 2005? All right, fine. You got uh, gave me a softball here, Johnny Depp. You are correct. Three to one. Bob still in the lead. And question five, back over to Bob. Bob, Oscar Schindler saved more than a thousand Jewish refugees by employing them in his factory, as portrayed in the film Schindler's List. Who played Schindler? Uh, Liam Neeson. Four to one, Bob. He's getting all these, Matt. It, this you, you need them all from here on out, Matt. Okay. Question six is over to you. One of the most famous factory scenes in movie history. Think about that for a second. One of the most famous factory scenes in movie history comes at the end of Officer. No, comes at the end of Officer and a Gentleman. We all know Richard Gere was the officer in the film, but which actress played the lead, Paula, in the movie? I thought you were about to say who was the gentleman. By the way, for the, for the folks listening, you're not privy to the visual of Ryan sitting at his kitchen counter with his windows behind him and the lightning flashing in his windows, kind of lording over the microphone like Dracula over there. It's pretty funny. Jeez. Very dramatic, I have to say. It's- yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. Dude. Officer and a gentleman, Richard Gere and who? She's a brunette, that much I remember, not a blonde. You do have a, a rescue. Oh, yeah. You. What question number is this? Question six. You're uh, down fine. three to one. Rescue me, Ryan. Four I need one, this sorry. one. Your clue is, Matt, this actress has wings. Deborah Winger. Whoa. Holy cow. There it is. <laughs> Four to two. Four to two. Still a ball game. Question seven. Back over to Bob. Modern Times, 1936, has a great factory scene in it. Who played the silent factory worker in modern times have to go with the the director the actor the the everything of modern right it's charlie chaplin right that is correct (laughs) bob wins this one but the last question is over to matt k matt gung-ho was a michael keaton (laughs) (laughs) you're ready with that from question one What was the question, though? I'm curious. Yeah, Gung Ho was a 1986 film directed by Ron Howard, who starred in the movie as Hunt Stevenson, an American boss trying to work with the Japanese who bought the company. Yeah, I was waiting for that one. That's yeah, yeah. But if we could get a virtual handshake here, Bob does win this one, five to three. Yeah, virtual fist bump. There it is. If it came down to a tie, this question would have been over to, well, to both of you guys. Age of Ron Howard closest to, Matt, do you got a guess? The great Ron Howard. I've been watching his um, master class commercials, not the actual class uh, on YouTube. And he's, he's looking pretty spry. He's all right. I think he's probably over 60 by now, maybe 64. Lock him in at 64, Bob. You got a guess? I think he looks good, but I think he's probably creeping close to 70 at this point. I remember watching Ron Howard in Happy Days when I was a kid, and that was the 70s. So my math's not great, but 70. Give that one to Matt K. actually. 66. Oh. 66. Well done. He's, Sorry, still, he, he's, getting, he's getting close to 70, though. So we were both kind of right. <laughs> Brings us to the end of a great jaw. And first and foremost, we got to thank our guest, Bob. This was uh, great talking to you, and thanks for coming on Cinema Jaw. Hey, this was great fun. Uh, happy to be back anytime. We'll take Again, you up on that for sure, man. We'll have you on. Yeah. 
And again, Jawheads, the name of the movie is Working Man, out on video on demand. Please rent it, support independent cinema, and let us know what you think. Uh, Matt, we also got to thank our sponsors. Yeah, thanks to Overcast and the Chicago Podcast Co-op, who help us get great sponsors like them. If you want to support Cinema Jaw, the easiest way to do so is by leaving us a review wherever you're listening to this podcast. And you can also join us on Patreon, which is really fun. There's cool rewards and perks for supporting us at any level, like bonus content, Ryan, extra podcasts. Until next week, I'm Ryan the Movie Guy. I'm Matt Kay. And keep on John about the movies. <laughs>